If you have a Bible with you this morning, you can turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find Philippians chapter 4 on page 982 of the Bibles that are in the Purex in front of you. Or that passage is also printed for you in your worship guide, so you can just follow along there if you prefer. Throughout the summer, we've been going through a series on the book of Philippians, which we've been calling Partners in the Gospel. The book of Philippians is in the New Testament, and it's a letter that the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Philippi, which was in the Roman Empire around the year 62 AD. And about 10 years prior to writing this letter, Paul himself was in Philippi, proclaiming the gospel to the people of Philippi. So now at this point, some of the people that he preached to, who responded by believing, have become the foundation to this church in Philippi. So 10 years after his visit, Paul is now writing to encourage and thank the church in Philippi for their support. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to get to a passage where we specifically see Paul thanking Philippi and expressing his gratitude for their financial support that they've sent to him. So throughout the book of Philippians, as we've been going through this series, we keep seeing this theme come up of partnership. We see that Paul and the church in Philippi are partners in sharing the gospel. And then we see within the church at Philippi that Paul tells the individual members that they are partners in the gospel. And we also keep seeing reminders of the story of Jesus throughout the book of Philippians. And we see reminders of how that story should shape the stories of followers of Jesus. And we're going to continue to see those same themes coming up throughout the rest of the book of Philippians. And of course, that includes this morning as well. So let's take a look now at this passage, Philippians 4, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let's take a moment and pray as we begin to look at this passage together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you haven't left us in silence to figure out how to live our lives well, but that you've given us your word to direct us and to teach us. And I ask that you would speak to us now through your word. I ask that you would direct us to understand how we can follow you because of these words that we look at this morning. I ask that you would encourage us, that you would give us wisdom as we interpret these words, that you would help us to know how to apply these words to our lives so that we can live as your sons and daughters as you created us to be. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In June of 2005, Tom Brady was coming off of his third Super Bowl victory in the last four years. And in two of those Super Bowl victories, he was named the MVP of the game. And so at that point in time, he sat down for an interview on 60 Minutes. During the interview, Steve Croft, who was the interviewer, asked Tom Brady about what he had learned about himself from the upward trajectory he had been on and how that experience had affected him as a person. And so when he began to respond to that question, he started off by talking about the immense amount of pressure that he puts on himself to have total control, to be responsible for everything that happens over the course of each game. But then he said this, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, 
this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? Steve Croft then asked, what's the answer? To which Brady responded, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I mean, there's, that's, I think that's part of me trying to go out and experience other things. I love playing football, and I love being a quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. I know what ultimately makes me happy are family and friends and positive relationships with great people. I think I get more out of that than anything. In just this moment in this interview, we see a man who has become a larger-than-life superstar suddenly become very relatable for us, don't we? Because there are moments where we wrestle with similar questions to what he's wrestling with here. There are times where we look at aspects of our life and we appreciate them. We have people in our lives and things in our lives that we love, and yet we still find ourselves wishing we knew what else there is for us. We find ourselves desiring something more from life. No matter how much success we have in our careers or our relationships or in any aspect of our life, we find ourselves thinking there must be more. Before the sermon series, right before we began the sermon series, we went through a series on the book of John that we called Flourish. And throughout that series, we talked about how the reason that Jesus came to earth was so that we would have life more abundantly. And we talked about how in Jesus, we get to experience the good life. And in this passage, we see Paul echoing that same idea. We hear from Paul about what it looks like to live a life in Christ. In fact, three times in these four verses we're looking at this morning, Paul uses the phrase, in Christ. So that should tell us that living in Christ is an important theme about what he's saying this morning. So let's look back at verse 1 as we begin to think about what it looks like to live life in Christ. Paul begins this section by saying, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Looking at this verse, we see the deep affection that Paul has for the church in Philippi as his partners in ministry. We see the pride that he has in them as he calls them his crown and his joy. As Paul is writing this letter, sitting in prison, he finds joy in seeing the fruit of his own ministry through the church in Philippi, as they're growing, they're developing, and they are now joining him in ministry. In fact, the type of crown that Paul is referring to, the word that he uses, refers to the type of crown that an athlete would receive if they were victorious, at the pinnacle of their success. So Paul is essentially saying that the faith and the development of the church in Philippi is the reward for all of his labor. He clearly cares deeply about these people. And in his affection, he tells them to stand firm in the Lord. Now, as I thought about what illustration I could use to portray this idea, I thought about many different movies, many different scenes that could communicate this idea well. I started off by thinking about a scene from Infinity War, but then I decided that's probably a little too recent, and I don't think what I was going to share was going to be a spoiler, but I would really hate to find out from someone who didn't see it that I was wrong about that. So I'm not going to do that. Don't worry. And then, of course, I thought about scenes from Batman movies, because I always think about Batman movies as illustrations. But 
Then I decided, well, there are probably better options for illustrations that I could use from Batman movies, so I'll save those for when I really need them. So I eventually landed on a scene from the Lord of the Rings movie, The Return of the King. Now, I'm still pretty sure that what I'm going to share is not going to spoil anything, but if it does, I just want to remind you that this movie came out in 2003, and the book has been out since 1955, so you've had some time to get ahead of me on this one. So in the movie, there is this gigantic battle scene, and at the beginning of the battle scene, we see one army emerging over the hill, this army of elves and humans. And the sun is shining brightly in the background behind them as they emerge over the hill. It becomes apparent as the scene develops that there are thousands and thousands of soldiers riding up at this point. And then across from them stands an army of orcs that's even bigger than this first army. As you look at the two sides standing across from each other, it seems to be an unwinnable battle for the first side, especially after all they've been through up until this moment. And they stand there preparing for battle against this ferocious enemy standing across from them. And their leader rides back and forth, shouting out instructions to them. They stand there knowing that they're outnumbered, knowing that they are facing a stronger enemy, knowing that many, if not all of them, are about to die. But they don't turn back. And on command, both sides run charging toward each other to engage in battle. Now, if you haven't seen that particular movie, that particular scene, you've probably seen some other movie, some other scene that gives you a similar picture. That's the picture that Paul is painting here, probably minus the elves and the orcs. But who knows? Maybe he liked them too. But when Paul uses this phrase, stand firm, that's actually a phrase that would be used to describe a soldier who's in the midst of battle as the enemy comes surging in on them. Paul is telling the church in Philippi not to be afraid of the enemy's attacks. He's telling them not to run in fear when they face trials. He's telling them, do not give in to temptation, but stand firm when you face great challenges. And there's no uncertainty in what Paul is saying here. He doesn't say, well, hopefully everything's going to work out fine for you guys. Hopefully you don't even have to worry about this. But if you face trials, stand firm if you do. No, he expects that they are going to face trials. He expects that they will struggle with temptation. He even expects that this church is going to face persecution. He compares their ministry and clinging to their faith to facing a battle with the enemy surging down on them. And his instruction in that comparison is for them to stand firm in the Lord. So what does that look like for us in day-to-day -day life? Well, it could mean standing firm to resist temptation when we face it. Maybe it means choosing to use our time to pursue Jesus and to join with him in mission instead of looking elsewhere in life for satisfaction. Maybe it means that we choose to be honest people even while we're working in the midst of a field or a workplace where we would benefit more from manipulating. Maybe it means that we choose to remain engaged in current events that are going on around us and choose to find opportunities to stand up for justice, even when it would be easier for us to tune out and live our own lives. Maybe it means changing the way that we participate in conversations, choosing to avoid being involved in gossip. But what Paul is saying here also means standing firm in our faith. Now, that doesn't mean that we never struggle with doubt, but it does mean that when the enemy that's surging down on us are feelings of doubt, thoughts of disbelief, then we choose to look for Jesus 
We choose to look to Jesus for reassurance instead of choosing to find another story to live by. In the moments where we're unsure of what we believe, we choose to stand firm by looking to Jesus to strengthen our faith. And notice that while Paul is talking here, he is talking to the members of the church of Philippi as individuals, but he's also talking to them as a congregation, as a whole. When he tells them to stand firm, he's telling them to stand together in unity alongside each other. To go back to that illustration, the scene from the movie, if we follow that thought, then when we as a congregation stand firm together in the Lord, all of the people in this room with us this morning, all of the members of this congregation are the other soldiers standing alongside of us when the enemy is surging down on us. We don't have to struggle on our own. When we face temptation, when we face doubt, we can look to Jesus for reassurance, but we can also look to our brothers and sisters in this community for support and encouragement to get us through. Last summer, I was volunteering at an event in Wilmington that required one block of the city to be shut down for the event. And my job at this particular event was to take tickets from people who had purchased admission to the block and allow them in, and then to tell other people who had not purchased their admission that they could not come onto the block and had to find another way to get where they wanted to go. Now, this would be one thing if the event was taking place in a residential area where there weren't many people that needed to get through, but this particular event took place on Market Street on a block where there were other businesses not associated with this particular festival who still thought they were going to be open on that day. And there were people who thought they would patron those uh, particular businesses on that day. So you can imagine people were not particularly happy when they were told, no, you can't go to the only block that has the business that you want to visit unless you pay to get onto the block right now. And as we were telling people this, sometimes they would start yelling at us. Sometimes people would even try to push their way past us to get onto the block. If I was standing there by myself that day, I will admit that a lot of people who were not supposed to be in that event would have definitely been in that event. There would have been moments where I certainly would have chosen self-preservation over fulfilling my obligation as a volunteer. But fortunately, while I stood there volunteering that day, I had a friend there with me. And each time that people would start shouting or trying to push their way past, he would stand firm and say, no, I'm sorry, you have to go a different way around. You can't come here right now. He stayed calm, but he stood firm. And as I saw him standing firm, it made it easier for me to join in and do the same. Now, there were definitely moments where I thought we were both crazy for what we were doing, but seeing someone standing firm next to me made it easier for me to stand firm. If we want to stand firm in the Lord, then it makes all the difference in the world who it is that's standing next to us. And so when we stand firm together as a congregation, it's our brothers and sisters in this room, and it's Jesus himself that stands firm by our side, strengthening our resolve to do the same. If we want to stand firm in the Lord, then we must be able to depend on Jesus, and we must be able to trust each other to do the same. And that leads us well into our next point this morning. Let's look back to our passage at verses 2 and 3. Paul says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Paul calls Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, before we get into what he's talking about, we need to take a step back and talk about some context here. 
This is the only time that Yodia and Syntyche are mentioned in the Bible. So we're really dependent upon just this passage to get an idea of who they are. But the commentaries seem to agree that Yodia and Syntyche are the names of two specific women. And based on Paul's comment about them laboring side by side, it seems to be that they are two people who have been important in the foundation of the church over the past 10 years since Paul was there to proclaim the gospel. But at this point in time, there's some sort of quarrel between the two of them. And all we know about the quarrel is that it exists. Paul doesn't give us more information, but regardless of what the quarrel is, he calls these women, he entreats them to find a way to agree in the Lord. And this word agree, the word that he uses here, is actually the same word that he uses back in Philippians 2, verse 2, where he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Agree and being of the same mind are the same word. So Paul comes back here to the importance of being unified as we labor together. If we're going to stand firm when we face temptation, then we have to be able to trust and depend on each other. And that requires us to find a way to work through quarrels when they arise. That requires us to find a way to work through our disagreements, to remain unified. But often we don't do this. In fact, many of us in this room right now can probably share stories about times where we've been hurt by the church or stories about times where we have spent years laboring with someone and been hurt by them, never to find reconciliation. We may like to think that this type of thing doesn't happen, but what we learn from this passage is that quarreling amongst believers is not something new. And what we learn from listening to each other's stories is that it's not even all that uncommon. In fact, if we find that we never have a time where we need to work through our differences, where we never have to work through hurt feelings together, then that probably actually means that we're too disconnected to even be able to hurt each other's feelings. Living in community with people with different personalities and different perspectives is really difficult. We should expect to find quarrels that come up from time to time. But when they do, we're called to step back and find a way to agree in the Lord. And that doesn't mean that this should be a simple process. In fact, sometimes working through quarrels can feel like the most painful thing that we can imagine. The first year that Christina and I were married was a very difficult year for us together. We were learning how to live together. We were learning to take time to consider each other before we made decisions, learning to think about the impact that our decisions would have on each other. And we were also learning that we were not as similar as we thought we were when we got married. And on top of all of those things, we also went through a period where neither one of us was employed, we had no regular income, and we arrived in Wilmington with negative messages from the church that I had grown up in about our marriage because it caused us to move away so we couldn't go there anymore. So each time we got into an argument, those messages came rushing back into my mind, made me wonder if maybe they were right, maybe this was a bad decision. And it felt like we were always working through some sort of disagreement that first year. Sometimes those disagreements went well. Sometimes we were able to quickly arrive at some conclusion, some agreement. But other times, those discussions were long and painful. In fact, there's one time in particular, I really don't remember what we were even arguing about. But I remember sitting on the stairs in our apartment that led out of our apartment about halfway down and thinking, if I go down, I don't know where I'm going to go. And I don't know if I can ever come back to this place again. And if I go up, I have to face my wife and I have to finish this conversation that I don't want to have. 
And I think it's very possible I may have sat there for hours before I finally decided to walk back in. And as I started to walk back in with each step, I felt like I was being ripped apart as I walked closer and closer to my wife into this conversation I didn't want to have. And if you ask Christina, I would say she can probably tell you stories of times where she was just as unhappy to see me walking back as I was to be walking back. Working through conflict together is incredibly painful and difficult, but it's also a crucial process if we're going to stand together, united as a family. And again, Paul doesn't just tell them, work through this on your own, figure it out on your own. He acknowledges that we need to be able to depend on each other in community. He asks someone that he refers to as a true companion to help them find a way to agree in the Lord. And we don't know who this person is that he's referring to as true companion, but it's clear that Paul believes that reconciliation is valuable enough that he is willing to direct even the resources of the church toward helping these two women work through their differences. There may be times where we're able to sit down with someone and just talk through our differences, but there are also times where we need an outside mediator to sit, uh, mediator to sit down and facilitate those conversations. And those times can actually be more difficult for us because not only does it require us to face someone who has hurt us, but it requires us to admit that we actually need help doing that. There were times during that first year of marriage where we'd be in the midst of an argument on our way to our friend's house, and my strategy was to try to rush through the argument so we wouldn't have to go into our friend's house and admit that everything was not perfect. And you can imagine that almost never worked the way I hoped it would. In fact, usually it made the argument worse. We'd arrive at our friend's house, still on very different pages, and we would have to walk in at odds. But when we entered our friend's house, our friends were there for us. They were able to walk with, it, walk with us through our disagreements and help us find resolution. It's crucial to our health as a congregation that we find ways to seek reconciliation when we're at odds with each other. In fact, one commentator put it this way, it is significant that when there was a quarrel at Philippi, Paul mobilized the whole resources of the church to mend it. He thought no effort too great to maintain the peace of the church. A quarreling church is no church at all, for it is one from which Christ has been shut out. No man can be at peace with God and at variance with his fellow men. A quarreling church is no church at all. If we want to live as the church, then we must find a way to come to an agreement in the Lord when we disagree. And if we look back at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, we see Paul talking about what this looks like. In fact, some of the commentators even suggested that he may have had this particular quarrel in mind when he wrote this. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Being of the same mind requires us to count others as more significant than ourselves. If I feel the need to enter a disagreement and establish my own importance or establish my own value, then I can't possibly work through my differences with someone else. In fact, we may not even be willing to sit down and face each other and have the conversation if we feel that way. 
But when we look to the interests of others, when we see others as more significant than ourselves, then we can humble ourselves to find a way to agree in the Lord. And of course, these instructions are for us when we find ourselves in the middle of a quarrel, but these instructions are also for us when we learn of quarrels between other members of this congregation. We as a congregation are called to value reconciliation, so when we learn of disagreements, we should be looking to help work toward reconciliation wherever possible. We as a congregation should be encouraging each other and counseling each other to go and speak to the other person when it's necessary to work through a quarrel. And at times, this may even require us to be willing to be that outside mediator who can facilitate the conversation. If we aren't at peace with each other, then we can't possibly live out our calling as the church. So we must value reconciliation enough to put whatever resources necessary toward helping brothers and sisters find a way to agree in the Lord. And before we move on to our final point, I want to look again at how Paul leads into telling the Philippians to be of the same mind. In verse 1, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. What is the encouragement in Christ that moves us toward reconciliation? It's that Jesus himself came to earth to reconcile us to the Father. We were at odds with God the Father because of our own sin. We were separated from him because of our own choices. And yet Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we have not lived. And then he died on the cross, paying the price for our sin and raised to life again, defeating death overcoming the death that we deserve to die because of our trespasses so that we could be reconciled to God the Father. So when we're struggling to move toward reconciliation and when it seems easier for us to move the opposite way rather than moving toward a person, we remember that Jesus, our Savior, brought reconciliation for us. He reconciled us to God and he now empowers us to humble ourselves to move toward others to seek reconciliation. Now, if we look to verse 4, we'll see Paul's final statement about living in the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. When you hear that word rejoice, what do you think of? When I hear it, I think of a feeling of joy building up inside of me, welling up inside of me, even overflowing. In fact, for, the, for me, the most obvious example I can think of is myself when I'm watching a football game or a soccer game and my team is doing well. Christina has said to other people that for the most part, throughout life, no matter what happens, I'm pretty level, pretty calm, don't really change my voice level very much. But when I'm watching a football game or a soccer game, I turn into sort of a different person. Maybe totally a different person. I think that's the way she says it. I go from being relatively calm and quiet to jumping around the room, yelling, celebrating, hopefully rejoicing more often than lamenting, though historically that has not really been the case for me. And I do a better job of restraining myself when I'm watching the game with other people, but if I'm at home by myself or with just Christina there, there are moments where I'm leaping off the couch and shouting at the game as if the team may be able to hear me through the TV. That's actually not what Paul has in mind, though, when he's talking about rejoicing in the Lord. Because the type of rejoicing that I'm doing when I'm watching a game is based totally on circumstances. It's this circumstantial feeling of joy that explodes out of me. And as a Panthers fan, that feeling of joy tends to be very brief, followed by the usual devastation and disappointment after another loss. 
But Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord always as he's sitting in prison, knowing that almost certain death awaits him. And he's writing to a church that will almost certainly face persecution and dark days ahead of them. He's not telling the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord in the sense of working themselves into some sort of manufactured joy that clings to ignorance regarding the trials that they're going to face ahead. He's calling them to a rejoicing that moves beyond their circumstances. He's calling them to rejoice not because of what they have or because of what they can accomplish, but because of who is with them. He's calling them not just to rejoice, but rejoice in the Lord. And as he writes that, he's sitting in a prison cell awaiting death, but he's able to rejoice because with him in that prison cell is Jesus. And when the Philippians face persecution and trials of all kinds, Paul tells them to rejoice because in the persecution, Jesus is there with them. He's calling the Philippians to joy not based on circumstances or possessions, but based on pure contentment because Jesus is with them wherever they go. He's calling them not to a temporary or fleeting joy, but to a lasting joy that cannot be taken by changing circumstances. And while he's calling them to this type of joy, there's also another meaning to that word rejoice. In our culture, when we hear the word rejoice, we think primarily of what we've been talking about so far. But in their culture that revolved around festivals and celebrations, the Philippians would have understood that in calling them to rejoice, Paul is calling them to publicly celebrate what the Lord has done for them. Maybe you find that surprising because that has not been your experience with the church. Maybe when you think about the church, you think of a group of cold people who are standoffish, who act superior to everyone else and judge others instead of rejoicing. Maybe you think of a group of people who demonize the culture around them and seem afraid to even engage the general public. So instead, they isolate themselves and hide from the outside world. If that's your view of the church this morning, then to be honest, it's probably been well-earned by the church because there are times where we have lived into those stereotypes. But that is not what the church was created to be. We weren't called to hide from the outside world or to look down on the culture around us, but we're called to bring Jesus and his kingdom into the world around us. We're called not to withdraw or to look down on others, but to teach our communities what it really looks like to celebrate and then to share with them about our reason for celebration. So Paul here is saying that if the Romans can hold feasts, if the Romans can hold festivals to celebrate their God, Caesar, then how much more should the church be celebrating our King, Jesus? He's saying that if other cities can host games and shows to celebrate their gods, then the church, most of all, should be a people who celebrate well and celebrate often. Because when we celebrate, it's the true God and King who was willing to die for us so that we could live, that we're celebrating. We don't celebrate some distant, self-serving king or a harsh, demanding God, but our loving God and king who chose to leave his throne in heaven to come and dwell among us and die for us so that we could be forgiven for choosing other gods and other kings and so that we could be welcomed back into his good kingdom. We as the church have great reason to celebrate, so we should be known as a people who know how to rejoice in the Lord. I think we're going to be talking more about what that looks like next week, and we're also going to hear before the end of our service this morning about an upcoming opportunity that we as a congregation have to celebrate together. 
But Paul here calls the church to rejoice and celebrate in the Lord, regardless of their circumstances, because we know that Jesus is at our side, regardless of our circumstances. As we come to our conclusion this morning, maybe you've already decided that this is just not going to happen for you. Maybe you've had the thought that if I really try to live that out, then I'm going to have no time left for myself. Maybe as you try to imagine what this would even look like implemented in your life, you realize that attempting this would mean living a completely different life than you have so far. If that's where you are this morning, then you're right. Life in the Lord is not just time-consuming. It's life-consuming. When we seek to live life in the Lord, we trade our old lives of seeking pleasure and prosperity for ourselves in exchange for a new life where we seek Jesus and his kingdom realized here on earth. Our priorities change. Our values change. Our schedules change. There's no area of our lives that are left untouched. What we're talking about this morning is not something that we can take lightly. But as we seek to live life in the Lord, what we also find is that we trade in these fleeting moments of joy for lasting joy and contentment, knowing that our Savior and our King goes wherever we go alongside of us. We get to stop wondering what the something more for us in life is. We no longer have to wish we knew what else there is in life because we find satisfaction that is not temporary, not in temporary accomplishments, but in Jesus' everlasting accomplishment on the cross to welcome us into his kingdom as citizens of heaven. When we give up our old lives for new life in the Lord, what we find is that we finally understand what true life really is. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we reflect on your word this morning, that you would help us to hold on loosely to the lives that we've built ourselves so far. I ask that you would not allow us to cling to the things that we have sought after, the things that we have labored for, the things that we have convinced ourselves will bring us joy, but that you would help us to hold tightly to your word instead and to hold tightly to the hope that we have in you. Jesus, I ask that you would help us to believe that you really are where we can turn for satisfaction, that you really are our model for reconciliation, that you really are the one who can strengthen our resolve to stand firm in the midst of temptation. I pray that if any of us are struggling this morning to reconcile to another brother or sister in this congregation, in our families, or in our communities, that, that you would give us a renewed desire to seek out reconciliation, that you would help us to live as one unified body. I pray that you would help us to rejoice over all that you've blessed us with, help us to rejoice that you go with us. And Jesus, I ask that you would help us to be known as a people who celebrate well. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.